choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 352 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16, Introduction, Crew Selection, and Command Module Pilot, Ken Mattingly. Born in 1596, René Descartes was a French philosopher, mathematician, and scientist. Even though he was a native of the Kingdom of France, he spent about 20 years of his life in the Dutch Republic. In fact, Descartes was one of the most notable intellectual figures of the Dutch Golden Age. Descartes is also widely regarded as one of the founders of modern philosophy. His best-known philosophical statement is cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Descartes' influence in mathematics was equally important. The Cartesian coordinate system was named after him. He is credited as the father of analytical geometry, which is the bridge between algebra and geometry that was used in the discovery of infinitesimal calculus and analysis. Descartes was also one of the key figures in the scientific revolution. Nearly a quarter million miles from Earth on the moon, a lonely, heavily worn, lunar impact crater located in the rugged south-central highlands was named to honor René Descartes. About 50 kilometers to the north of this crater was the landing site for Apollo 16. The uneven region around the landing area is called the Descartes Highlands or the Descartes Mountains. With only two moon landings left, why was this site chosen? All of the preceding Apollo landing missions sampled lunar mare material, either directly or indirectly. A landing site in the lunar highlands was selected with the goal of investigating the material located there. Two landing sites were given consideration to achieve this goal. The Descartes site, and the crater Alphonus. Apollo 16's landing spot in the Descartes Highlands was chosen to allow the astronauts to gather geologically older lunar material than the samples obtained in three of the first four moon landings. 
which were in or near basaltic plains. This site would allow the astronauts to sample from the prominent Descartes Formation and the Calais Formation in the area, which in the end would disprove a hypothesis that the formations were volcanic in origin. The landing site was located in a hilly region north of the Descartes Crater in a highlands area of the southeastern quadrant of the visible face of the moon. The Calais Plains segment of the landing site was characterized by terrain ranging from smooth to undulating. The Descartes Mountains part of the Cant Plateau was characterized by hilly, furrowed highland plateau material. Priority was given to locating and obtaining samples of old highland material that was older than the Imbrium impact in order to give insight to the geologic timeline and composition of the moon. North Ray and South Ray craters, both prominent features in the immediate landing area, were also prioritized because material from the prominent formations in the area had been naturally excavated there by the impacts that formed them. Now let's talk about the crew. On March 4, 1971, NASA officially announced the crew for Apollo 16. The space agency named Navy Captain John W. Young, age 40, to command the mission. It would be his fourth spaceflight. The lunar module pilot, who would explore the moon with Young, was Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Charles M. Duke, Jr., age 35. Even Chris Kraft held these astronauts in high regard. Well, John Young was a, was a test pilot, test pilot still is today. And you got everything out of John Young that you could ever ask for. If you asked him to do something, he was going to get it done. You know, because he does things uh, the right way, the best way, and gets what you ask for. Charlie Duke is very much the same way in terms of, uh, of responding to people's re requirements. Charlie Duke also was one of those guys that had a very great sense of humor. And I think that he was a natural uh, adjunct to, to uh, John Young. The command module pilot would be Navy Lieutenant Commander Thomas K. Mattingly II, age 34, who was to have been the command module pilot on Apollo 13. Here's Chris Kraft again. I had everything to do with TK not flying on Apollo 13. But had he gotten German measles on the way, on, out, when he was out there on the moon or around the moon, uh, that would have been horrible. Uh, it would have, he would have been, could have been sick, he could have been life-threatening, and from the standpoint of the mission, he would, could not have, would not have been able to perform. Having concentrated seven days a week, 24 hours a day, on an event that's uh, suddenly denied for what you, know, you, you feel is an unreasonable reason, even though intellectually you know that it's a, it's a sound decision, uh, emotionally you, you feel like uh, you've been cheated.
cheated from something important. I don't blame Tom Mattingly for being upset about it because I think he knew in his own mind that he probably was immune and that it wasn't going to be a problem, but we had no way of proving that. And uh, I've apologized to him profusely many times since then, but I think he's gotten over it. To truly understand how this crew was selected, we must think back to the Apollo 13 mission. The story of Apollo 16 actually began in the days just before the launch of the ill-fated Apollo 13 mission. The prime crew of Apollo 13 originally consisted of James Lovell, Fred Hayes, and T.K. Mattingly, while the backup crew consisted of John Young, Charles Duke, and Jack Swigert. The prime crew of Apollo 13 spent years together training for this mission and were prepared for the flight of their lives until fate altered their flight plan. Two days before they were supposed to go, um, Charlie Duke, who was on the backup crew, uh, was exposed to the measles, came down with the measles, and of course then exposed everybody in the prime crew. And Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes had had the measles when they were kids, but Ken Mattingly, who was the command module pilot, had never had the measles. So the doctors bounced him from the flight and replaced him two days before blastoff with a guy named Jack Swigert, who had been his backup. I mean, and, and they had never done a crew change that close to a flight before. Never did it again. Although there were exceptions, in general, crew assignments were based on a three-mission rotation. Young was assigned as the backup commander of Apollo 13, along with Charlie Duke and Jack Swigert. So, according to the standard rotation, they would fly in Apollo 16. However, as you heard on the clip, just before the Apollo 13 mission was to launch, Charlie Duke exposed both the primary and backup crews to the German measles. The prime crew members, Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes, had already had measles, so that was no problem for them. Unfortunately, Ken Mattingly never had the measles and therefore was not immune. This problem was solved by swapping Ken Mattingly with Jack Swigert. But this was not a complete disaster for Mattingly because the swap put him on the prime crew for Apollo 16. Although at the time, Mattingly was sorely disappointed about his replacement on Apollo 13 especially since he did not contract the measles. But in the end, moving to Apollo 16 worked out much better for Ken. On April 13, 1970, only two days after the Apollo 13 mission began, one of the oxygen tanks on board the spacecraft blew up and ruptured the backup oxygen tank, causing the spacecraft to lose electrical power, water, and oxygen. This forced the crew to use the lunar module as a lifeboat. Astronauts Young, Duke, and Mattingly worked feverishly for five days straight with thousands of fellow astronauts, engineers, and scientists to help bring this crew back alive. The Apollo 13 successful return was a brilliant demonstration of human ingenuity in a life or death situation. Mattingly's contribution to the success of bringing his friends back alive certainly did not go unnoticed by NASA management. 
Deke Slayton, head of the astronaut office and in charge of the crew selections, made sure that Mattingly's actions were duly acknowledged. I don't remember the, what the regular sequence was. It was like three flights. If you were a backup from one, you would expect to fly as a prime crew on about three flights down the, down the chain. I don't know when, but not too long after the, the mission was over, I, Deke told me that I have another, another chance to, to go fly. So uh, it still came out as being pretty lucky. And, and in retrospect, well, we know I came out very lucky. Apollo 16 would be the 10th crewed mission in the United States Apollo Space Program, the fifth and penultimate to land on the moon, and the second to land in the lunar highlands. It was also the second of Apollo's so-called J missions that included the lunar rover. Now, here is Commander John Young with the mission objectives for Apollo 16. The Apollo 16 mission objectives were to land at uh, Descartes in the lunar highlands and to, to bring back the rocks, uh, put out the... Uh, Lunar scientific experiment package and do all the things you had to do in three days of exploration of the surface up there. Officially, Apollo 16 had three basic objectives, which were, first, to explore and sample the materials and surface features near the landing site. Second, to install and activate experiments on the lunar surface, including the ALSEP package, which would continue to relay data back to Earth after the crew had left. And third, to conduct in-flight experiments and photographic tasks. Like previous Apollo missions, Apollo 16 would be launched from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Its final scheduled launch date was at 12.54 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on April 16, 1972. The mission would last 11 days, 1 hour, and 51 minutes. And it would conclude at 2.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on April 27th. Young and Duke would spend 71 hours, just under 3 days, on the lunar surface, during which time they would conduct three extravehicular activities, or moonwalks, totaling 20 hours and 14 minutes. The pair would drive the lunar roving vehicle, the second one produced and used on the moon, for 26.7 kilometers or 16.6 miles on the surface. It was planned for Young and Duke to collect as much as 200 pounds of lunar samples for return to Earth. During this time, Command Module Pilot Ken Mattingly would orbit the moon in the Command and Service Module to perform observations. Mattingly's time alone was expected to last 126 hours, and he was going to make 64 revolutions. During this time, Mattingly would have the responsibility for operating the in-flight experiments and photography. The Scientific Instrument Module, Bay, in the service module, it's called the SIM Bay, was the heart of the in-flight experiment effort for Apollo 16. 
It was quite similar to the Sim Bay flown on Apollo 15. The bay contained high-resolution and mapping cameras and scientific sensors for photographing and measuring properties of the lunar surface and the environment around the moon. After Young and Duke rejoined Mattingly in lunar orbit, the crew would release a sub-satellite from the service module. During the return trip to Earth, Mattingly would perform a one-hour spacewalk to retrieve several film cassettes from the exterior of the service module. The Apollo 16 crew would also carry out engineering and operational tasks, including further evaluation of the lunar roving vehicle and Skylab crew equipment, and use of the Sim Bay subsatellite as a navigation tracking aid. Other medical experiments included the biological effectiveness of high-energy nuclei components of galactic cosmic ray particles, the Apollo light flash moving emulsion detector, and the passive bone mineral measurement experiment. Now a word on training. As you can imagine, crew training for an Apollo mission was extensive. In addition to the usual Apollo spacecraft training, Young and Duke, along with backup commander Fred Hayes, underwent an extensive geological training program that included several field trips to introduce them to concepts and techniques they would use in analyzing features and collecting samples on the lunar surface. During these trips, they visited and provided scientific descriptions of geologic features they were likely to encounter. In July 1971, they visited Sudbury, Ontario, Canada for geology training exercises, the first time U.S. astronauts did so. Geologists chose the area because of a 60-mile, 97-kilometer-wide crater apparently created about 1.8 billion years ago by a large meteorite. The Sudbury Basin showed evidence of scattered cone geology, thus familiarizing the Apollo crew with geologic evidence of a meteorite impact. During the training exercises, the astronauts did not wear spacesuits, but carried radio equipment to converse with each other and scientist astronaut Anthony W. England, practicing procedures they would use on the lunar surface. In addition to the field geology training, Young and Duke also trained to use their EVA spacesuits, adapt to reduced lunar gravity, collect samples, and drive the lunar roving vehicle. They also received survival training and preparation for other technical aspects of the mission. Command Module Pilot Mattingly received training in recognizing geological features from orbit by flying over the field areas in an airplane, and he trained to operate the scientific instrument module from lunar orbit. Uh, a typical day in training uh, for us was a hard day. Uh, we got started early in the morning. Uh, generally, uh, we'd have four or five hours in the simulator. 
Uh, we'd uh, then uh, spend an afternoon in uh, lunar surface type training, uh, putting on our suits and practicing either getting suited up in the lunar module or either going out on the simulated rock pile we had down in Florida to practice putting our experiments out. Being able to uh, find the kinds of rocks of interest among all the various kinds of rocks up there, we went through a lot of training exercises to teach them to recognize rocks that we thought would be interesting. Well, we went to several places where rocks are exposed well, basically in the western United States. We went to Hawaii and looked at both. Looked at volcanic rocks, basaltic rocks out there. Those were the basic areas we went to. We'd had a lot of training in geology. We'd been actually uh, Charlie Duke and I had been trained for lunar geology for since 1960s, early 1960s. So we had a lot of uh, a lot of training, and pretty much knew what kind of rocks to pick up. But I was just talking with uh, one of the guys who worked with. Charlie Duke uh, and John Young on the 16 crew, and he, he was describing an incident where uh, when we did our training exercises, we had the guys wired with radios like they were going to be on the moon, and they were talking to a back room. And they started screaming about how they really found this really neat rock and how there was really life on the moon, and what they found was a rattlesnake. And when he got up there, they were kind of jumping around and jumping away from it. It was, it was quite amusing. <laughs> Another aspect of the training was the preparation for the long treks ahead in the innovative lunar rover. After the shakedown tests done on Apollo 15, this rover would allow Young and Duke to go further and faster than ever before on the lunar surface. The rover was a really a unique car. It was electric. It had two batteries. Each wheel had its own electric motor, so it was four-wheel drive. They had a double steering system. In other words, you could steer with the front end and the back end. It had a handle that sat between the seats that was uh, the, the total control over it. You, you push the handle forward to go forward, pull the handle back to put on the brake. If you wanted to turn left, you push the handle left, and the car, of course, turned left. Uh, it was a highly maneuverable machine. We had a centrifuge rig that put you at 1.6 gravity on end. 13 miles or something over there one time just to see, just to prove that you could get back in case you ran out of, in case your lunar rover stopped driving, that you could still get back. While Young and Duke were spending most of their time simulating their anticipated experiences on the lunar surface, Mattingly was busy setting records in the command module simulators. One of the things that uh, I've I think is one of NASA's major accomplishments is in preparing flight crews, they, they have these simulations which are extraordinarily realistic for the ground controllers and for the flight crews and for the team as, as, a, as an organized group. And I think that's the key to why they've been so successful. And he was good. I mean, we're like, he was the world record holder for hours in the simulator. I mean, he had simulated this flight for a couple of hundred hours. You know, he was ready. After having spent well over two years in training and about 2,000 hours in simulators and test facilities, the crew was finally quarantined in anticipation of their historic mission. As with previous missions, there was a quarantine period before launch. Here's Charlie Duke describing one of his more interesting quarantine experiences. 
One of the funny things that happened during a flight, I have a twin brother named Bill, Bill and Bill's a doctor uh, in our hometown in South Carolina. Before the flight, uh, we were in quarantine. My brother had come down with his family, was staying at the Holiday Inn in Cocoa Beach, and then he's walking by the pool, and there's all the NASA management there, Rocco Patron and George Lowe and a few others. Uh, and they looked at him, and their initial thought, we found out later, was, this guy's broken quarantine. What's Duke doing out here? He's supposed to be in quarantine. So uh, they called up out there, what's Duke breaking quarantine? And, you know, the guy picks up, well, he's right here. What do you mean he's not breaking quarantine? So we had everybody have a big laugh over that. The launch of Apollo 16 was delayed one month from March 17th to April 16th. This was the first launch delay in the Apollo program due to a technical problem. During the delay, the space suits, a spacecraft separation mechanism, and batteries in the lunar module were modified and tested. There were concerns about the explosive mechanism designed to separate the docking ring from the command module, that it would not create enough pressure to completely sever the ring. This, along with a dexterity issue in Young's spacesuit and fluctuations in the capacity of lunar module batteries, required investigation and troubleshooting. Also of note, in January 1972, three months before the planned April launch date, a fuel tank in the command module was accidentally damaged during a routine test. The rocket had to be returned to the vertical assembly building and the fuel tank replaced. Then the rocket was returned to the launch pad in February in time for the scheduled launch. Now let's begin our crew biographies with command module pilot Ken Mattingly. Thomas Kenneth Mattingly II was born on March 17, 1936 in Chicago, Illinois to Thomas Kenneth Mattingly and Constance Mason Mattingly. His father, who had been hired by Eastern Airlines soon after his son's birth, moved the family to Hialeah, Florida. Aviation became part of Ken's life from a very young age. He later recalled that his earliest memories all had to do with aeroplanes. Well, I, I was a little kid. I've been fascinated with aeroplanes. My dad worked for Eastern Airlines. And he'd take me out to the airport on weekends when he was working and let me go sit in the airplanes and watch them. I 
is the neatest airplane in the world. And these guys are dressed like real people. Standing around out there playing with us. I don't know what they do or how you get there, but I'd like to do that. I never really dreamed it would come true. So luck has, has ways of putting you in places you didn't think you wanted to be, but turned out it was a really good idea. As with so many astronauts, Mattingly was active in the Boy Scouts of America, where he achieved its second highest rank of Life Scout. He graduated from Miami Edison High School in 1954 and went on to receive a Bachelor of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering from Auburn University in 1958. He was also a member of the Delta Tau Delta fraternity. Ken was also a student at the Air Force Aerospace Research Pilot School. But Ken Mattingly was a military man at his core. The United States military is a magnificent organization. And, and because of the hardships that they endured, they formed an unbeatable team. And the relationships that they formed amongst those people persist your whole life. We move around to different places and you, it's fun to go from one base to another where you don't know anybody and by golly there's somebody that was shared the same station squadron or something from some time back. And the, the camaraderie and, and integrity relationships I haven't seen in the civilian Neil Armstrong said it I would say the same thing those wings of gold Mattingly began his naval career as an ensign in 1958 I got sent to a ship that was in dry dock hadn't been commissioned yet and there were two ensigns that lived aboard ship the only two people, besides maybe rats, that lived on the ship. He was from West Virginia, and I came up from Alabama. And we lived on that boat. And everyone else lived ashore. Did I remember? You can't just get up and walk off and go to drive down to Washington and get your orders. You have to go get the gunnery officers approved. Scribbled 
his signature on it and says, get out of here. Mattingly received his wings in 1960. He was then assigned to Attack Squadron 35 and flew A-1H aircraft aboard the USS Saratoga from 1960 to 63. In July of 1963, he served in Reconnaissance Attack Heavy Squadron 11, deployed aboard the USS Franklin D. Roosevelt, where he flew the A-3B aircraft for two years. In total, he logged 4,200 hours of flight time, 2,300 hours in jet aircraft. Ken then moved on from the Navy to NASA in 1965. The National Organization brought in people from all services, but the Air Force and Navy made the biggest contributions because of the nature of their business. And uh, so it, it, the only thing that was different was when you got from, from the service at NASA was no way more uniforms. On September 10, 1965, NASA began the selection process for the fifth astronaut group from a pool of 351 applicants. NASA selected 159 candidates that met the basic qualifications that required that applicants must be U.S. citizens born on or after December 1, 1929 and no more than 6 feet tall. They were also required to have at least 1,000 hours of flight time in a jet aircraft. Mattingly had previously shown little interest and inclination to apply for the astronaut program. However, his views changed when at the Air Force Test Pilot School, his class was offered the chance to apply for either NASA or the U.S. Air Force Manned Orbiting Laboratory Program. Mattingly chose the Air Force, but was rejected. And, by that time, the deadline for applying for the NASA group had passed. However, one of his instructors was able to get NASA to accept his application regardless. On the interview panel, the astronaut office representatives were John Young and Mike Collins at that time in training as prime crew for Gemini 10. Mattingly would later recollect that he was perplexed by Young, and Collins asked Mattingly what he felt about the F-104, to which Mattingly replied that he thought it was a fun aircraft, but worthless in combat. Collins appeared to dislike the answer, and Mattingly felt he had blown his chance. However, after the conclusion of the selection process, Mattingly was called by Deke Slayton with an offer to become an astronaut. At the time of his selection, he had 2,582 hours of flight experience, including 1,036 hours in jet aircraft. He also had a bachelor's degree in engineering as required by the initial qualifications. From the 100 military personnel and 59 civilian candidates, NASA selected 19 astronauts to join the group. 
Mattingly, a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy, was a student at the Air Force Aerospace Research Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base, California, when NASA selected him as an astronaut in April 1966. At first, Mattingly was part of the support crew for Apollo 8. Mattingly served as Capcom during Apollo 8's second television transmission and subsequent preparation for trans-Earth injection. He then trained parallel with Bill Anders for Apollo 11 as backup command module pilot because Anders was going to retire from NASA in August of 1969 and in case of mission delay, Anders would be unavailable. Ken's first space flight was supposed to be Apollo 13. As mentioned before, he was scrubbed from that flight just before launch. However, Mattingly was involved in helping the crew solve the problem of power conservation during re-entry, and he read up the command module power-up instructions to the crew. And so it was then that we were ready to read up the procedure. And you did that, right? I think. Um, I, 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 frankly, I couldn't tell you because reading a note, I was there. Yeah, whether I was reading or watching, yeah, I couldn't tell you. The record indicates that you did it, but okay, well, <laughs> but in any event, the, the idea was we're there to answer questions, right? Because we'd had substantial discussions in arriving at this procedure. Reading it up was just a matter of clear communication. Right. I tell you something, you read it back to me. And yeah, you got it. And, it's, and and poor Jack was up there with every piece of scrap of paper yeah. he could find that they're trying to keep it in sequence mm -hmm. and, and write. And, and you're telling them what switch, which yeah. keystroke, everything, right? Yeah. And so all that goes up. And, and these poor guys, as I recall, we didn't even give them a, an overview. It was, we're going to read you a procedure takes the place of the one you have. Right. So get your all your pencils out. And, mm -hmm. and so you know the guys on board were checking whoever's writing it to make sure, that, yeah, that's what he said. Right. We, we, and, all, we all understand each other. And so that's the way that went up. Of course, the swap out from Apollo 13 placed Mattingly on the crew that would fly Apollo 16 in April of 1972 the fifth crewed lunar landing mission. The crew included John Young, commander, Mattingly as command module pilot, and Charles Duke as lunar module pilot. The mission assigned to Apollo 16 was to collect samples from the lunar highlands near the crater Descartes. While in lunar orbit, the scientific instruments aboard the command service module, CASPER, extended the photographic and geochemical mapping of a belt around the lunar equator. 26 separate scientific experiments were conducted both in lunar orbit and during cislunar coast. Major emphasis was placed on using man as an orbital observer, capitalizing on the human eye's unique capabilities and man's inherent curiosity. Here's Ken 
on his command module pilot experience. Command module pilots all had a general consensus that we're going to do we're going to do everything right. We're going to each of us is going to use less propellant than the guy before mm -hmm. us because that's a matter of professional pride. And yeah. If I can yeah. if I can hold on to the propellant, then we can do something else. Yeah. And while we're up here in orbit, um, there were people were still giving us some experiments to run, mm -hmm. but the interest was on the surface. You know, it's, it's a magic environment, yeah. and yeah. we were fortunate enough to have a, we were allowed to take a little, little tape recorder, and uh, and so I happened to I happened to like classical music. I've read that, and so when either John or Charlie came yeah. for that, so they were they were country they, music they were, fans, right? They were they were reserved for my private time. Yes, but I can tell you when you put music into the environment, and you look out the window, and the spacecraft is inherently a quiet machine. Yeah, you know, a little whir from a air circulating fan, and maybe a little buzz from from a transformer somewhere. Right, but it's it's essentially silent, and and you're floating, and you're, floating. And you're looking out the window at this unbelievable scene, the universe, and you put music to it. It is really, really something. During the return leg of the mission, Mattingly carried out an extravehicular activity to retrieve film and data packages from the science bay on the side of the service module. Although the mission of Apollo 16 was terminated one day early due to concern over several spacecraft malfunctions, all major objectives were accomplished through the ceaseless efforts of the mission support team and were made possible by the most rigorous pre-flight planning yet associated with an Apollo mission. Following his return to Earth, Mattingly served in astronaut managerial positions in the Space Shuttle Development Program. In 1982, Ken got his first shuttle flight. Here, he describes the different launch experience between a shuttle versus the Saturn V. Could you tell us the differences between launching on the shuttle and the launch on the Saturn V? Yeah. Start terror, and isn't this cool? <laughs> the shuttle compared to the, to the Saturn. There's a little bit of shaking that comes from the solid rockets, but not much. But it's a very smooth ride. It just takes off, and it's not at a high acceleration. It doesn't slam you in the back of the seat. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very, very comfortable ride. Anybody that's used to flying military aircraft where you uh, light the burner, it's about the same thing, a little more. But it's, uh, it's really, really different. Mattingly commanded STS-4, the fourth and final orbital test flight of the Space Shuttle Columbia, launched in June of 1982. This seven-day mission was designed to further verify ascent and entry phases of shuttle missions, 
perform continued studies of the effects of long-term thermal extremes on the orbiter subsystems, and conduct a survey of orbiter-induced contamination on the orbiter payload bay. Additionally, the crew operated several scientific experiments located in the orbiter's cabin and in the payload bay. STS-4 completed 112 orbits of the Earth before landing on a concrete runway at Edwards Air Force Base, California on July 4, 1982. Mattingly and his pilot, Hartsfield, were greeted by President Ronald Reagan after the landing. Reagan recognized the pair, both graduates of Auburn University, as, quote, you two sons of Auburn, end quote, in his welcoming speech. Ken also commanded STS-51C, the first space shuttle Department of Defense mission launched in January of 1985. STS-51C performed its DOD mission, which included deployment of a modified inertial upper stage vehicle from the space shuttle Discovery. Landing occurred on January 27, 1985. In 1985, Mattingly retired from NASA and retired from the Navy in 1986 with the two-star rank of Rear Admiral and entered the private sector. Ken worked as a director in Grumman Space Station Support Division. He then headed the Atlas Booster Program for General Dynamics in San Diego, California, and at Lockheed Martin, he was vice president in charge of the X-33 development program. Mattingly is the recipient of numerous awards. I will name just a few. He was awarded the NASA Distinguished Service Medals twice, the Johnson Space Center Certificate of Commendation in 1970, the Navy Distinguished Service Medal, Navy Astronaut Wings, and the Department of Defense Distinguished Service Medal. Mattingly was inducted with a group of Apollo astronauts in the International Space Hall of Fame in 1983, and he was one of the 24 Apollo astronauts who were inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997. And lastly, Ken's personal life. In 1970, he married Elizabeth Daly, and they have one child. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 352 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 16 Introduction, Crew Selection, and Command Module Pilot Ken Mattingly. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on December 3rd. Sorry, I ran so long on this episode, I'll try to move things along right now. 
had a couple people write in with questions and concerns about the announcement I made last week, so I just wanted to make sure everyone understands I am not ending the podcast. I am just skipping ahead to Apollo 16 and then 17 to make sure I get them done in case I croak or something else bad happens. <laughs> now, I'm not expecting to go belly up, you know. I think I'm in pretty good health. I, I just, In fact, I just lost a little over 50 pounds, so don't worry about my health. Everything is okay. It's just in case. I would just hate to have gone this far and to end without covering the final two Apollo moon missions. So I, I, it's been worrying me for a long time about getting those things done. So I just, I'm going to go ahead, bite the bullet, and just skip ahead and get them done. And it's going to take a load off my mind once they're completed. That's all I'm doing. Moving on. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 179 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. Should be available on most podcatchers. All right, a uh, few quick afterthoughts here. I have discovered that well over half of my listeners do not listen past the outro music. So if they want to, to support the podcast, they don't really know how. To remedy the situation, I'm going to add a 10-second reminder at the very beginning of the podcast, like I do on the archive podcast already in hopes we can get funding up just a little bit. If you are already a donor, please ignore this message and feel free to fast forward right through that uh, reminder on the front of the episode. Hope it's not too disturbing to you. I am still looking for long news, audio, or video clips for Apollo 16 and 17. When I say news, I'm talking about something from CBS, NBC, ABC, somebody like Cronkite or Jules Bergman or someone like that that you have clips of that are available. I would love to have them so I could use them as part of the podcast. If you do, please contact me. And it is, my address is mike at spacerockethistory.com. I'm really looking forward to Apollo 16. It's going to be a great mission, I know, and there are going to be some problems that some of you may not have known about. Everything definitely did not go smoothly. I hope I did Ken Mattingly justice. He's one of the astronauts that did not write their own book, so it was a little harder to get into his mind and, and understand what he was thinking. So I, I'm sure I left out some important things, but, you know, there's only so much time available for a biography anyway, so I hope I did him justice. As usual, I apologize for the quality of some of those audio clips. I just do the best with what I can find. I think the easiest person to recognize on the clips is Charlie Duke, he has that South Carolina draw. He was born in Charlotte, and he moved down to Lancaster. Some people call it, <laughs> some people call it Lancaster or Lancaster. We, 
I kind of always heard it pronounced Lancaster. Some people call it Lancaster. But anyway, that's where he grew up. <laughs> and he has that southern drawl. And even I can hear it, and I usually don't hear a southern drawl. It's hard for me to hear it because I, that's what happens all around me. And that's the way I talk as well. So it's, it's hard for me to hear it. But I, I can recognize it a little bit on Charlie. And I guess, you know, I probably sound kind of like Charlie too myself. I've got the North Carolina drawl. So, you know. <laughs> Finally, I wanted to congratulate the OSIRIS-REx team on the asteroid sample return and SpaceX for delivering another crew to the space station. Okay, let's move on. If you're enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, only if you are financially able, no one send in any contribution who can't afford it. But if you can, please consider supporting the podcast. For over seven and two-thirds years, we have been entirely listener-supported. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. And it's that time of year again for Listener Rewards Season. Just like last year, if you donated $100 or more during 2020 and have not received the magnet, send me an email and I'll send you one. Or if you have donated $50 to $99 this year, send me an email and we will send you out a sticker. This offer is good until December 31st. My email address is mike at spacerockethistory.com. Happily, finances got a little better this week, and I wanted to thank all those who pitched in. Matthew O. from Texas donated at the Starship level and earned a satellite emoji. James M. from Scotland sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. Robert M. from Texas sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. Steve C. from Georgia sent in another donation and moved to the Mir ISS level. Matthew P. from Minnesota donated at the Salyut Skylab level. Joe C. from Colorado donated at the Apollo level. Daniel S. from Kentucky donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Martin C. from Australia donated at the Gemini level. Greg H. from Louisiana donated at the Soyuz level and earned a rocket emoji. Dan W. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Chris L. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Grant T. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. And John S. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Thank you very much. Our total Patreon donors have increased to... 248. Our goal, of course, is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 413, with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. Are you ready for the drawing for this episode? Remember, the winner will get the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet or two coasters or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the new SRH archive magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Chris Noble. Chris Noble, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks 
to all 413 of you who have contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were NASA, Flight by Chris Craft, the Apollo 16 Press Kit, Failure's Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Moonwalker by Charlie Duke, Forever Young by John Young, Apollo 16 Flight Journal, Apollo 16 Mission Report, the Internet Archive, Wikipedia, and Stars and Stripes. That's all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 353 posted by Thursday, December 3rd. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.